Okay, so let me read the Word of God from Mark chapter 7, verses 1 to 13, and then we will pray. The Pharisees and some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem gathered around Jesus, around him. They observed that some of his disciples were eating their bread with unclean, that is, unwashed, hands. For the Pharisees, in fact, all the Jews, will not eat unless they wash their hands ritually, keeping the tradition of the elders. When they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they have washed. There are many other customs they have received and keep, like the washing of cups, jugs, copper utensils, and dining couches. Verse 5. Then the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, Why don't your disciples live according to the tradition of the elders? Instead of eating the bread with ritually unclean hands. He answered them, Isaiah prophesied correctly about you hypocrites. As it is written, These people honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. They worship me in vain, teaching as doctrines the commands of men. Disregarding the command of God, you keep the tradition of men. He also said to them, You completely invalidate God's command in order to maintain your tradition. For Moses said, Honor your father and your mother, and whoever speaks evil of father or mother must be put to death. But you say, if a man tells his father or mother, whatever benefit you might have received from me is Corbin, that is, a gift committed to the temple, verse 12, you no longer let him do anything for his father or mother. Verse 13, you revoke God's word by your tradition that you have handed down, and you do many other similar things. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Our Father in heaven, we have already prayed twice. Pastor Merle led us in praying, Brother Gail led us in praying, and now we come to you again. But we come to you because we know that you hear us, because we don't come in our own name. We don't come according to our righteousness and our Christian experience and Christian maturity. We come to you in the name of Jesus, the one who lived for us, the one who died for us, the one who rose for us. And we're asking you, Father, in the name of Jesus, that your Holy Spirit would apply and and explain this text powerfully to our hearts. Father, we pray that you would step on all of our toes this morning, including mine, that you'd correct us, that you would convict us, that you would expose subtle, sneaky sins that have found little crevices in our hearts, And have gone unchallenged. We pray that your spirit would challenge us this morning. And then we pray that we would renew our repentance. And and, um, cling to Jesus Christ afresh this morning. We pray for any of our friends here. For all of our friends here. Who don't know you yet. And are here this morning. We do pray that you would give them faith in Christ. That you would open their eyes to see the beauty of Jesus Christ. And the emptiness of every other solution to the issues of life. None of this can happen apart from your Spirit's power, so we look to Him now, and we're trusting in you now. In Jesus' name, Amen. If you're not a Christian, and you're here this morning, you might object to Christianity because of hypocrisy among Christians. So if you're not a Christian, you might think this. PJ, I understand that you say that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, that Christianity is the truth, but but I think that every religion, well, okay, every religion has its hypocrites. But, if you're thinking as a non-Christian, you might be saying, but it seems that the most fervent Christians are the most condemning, exclusive, and intolerant. And the church has a history of supporting injustices, of destroying culture, and of oppression. And there are so many people who are not Christian or not religious at all, who appear to be much more kind, caring, and indeed even more moral than so many Christians. If Christianity is the true religion, how can this be? Why would so much oppression have been carried out over the centuries in the name of Christ and with the support of the church? That's a serious question, right? That's a valid question. 
It's an important question to ask. And so if you're not a Christian, and that might be maybe the reason why you're not a Christian is because of the hypocrisy of the church, I want to say first that I understand the question, and I get it. Before I respond to that, let me speak to the Christians for a second. As Christians, can't we feel our own hypocrisy? I mean, it just takes a moment to look at our own lives. We believe in evangelism, right? We believe that people need to hear the gospel to be saved. I believe in evangelism. Yet I can confess that I don't think I shared the gospel with a non-Christian this week. But I believe in it. I believe it's absolutely essential for non-Christians to hear the gospel to be saved. I, uh, but we can all look at our lives and think, oh yeah, I mean, I believe it here, I say it, but my life doesn't always match up to it. Or the Bible, isn't this the inerrant, inspired, infallible, authoritative word of God? Yet we can. Yet many Christians can confess readily that we don't read it as maybe as often as we should, but we do believe it's the Word of God. Well, or prayer. Isn't prayer essential? Don't we need prayer? We absolutely need prayer. Many, no Christian should say we don't need prayer. But then, you know, I think one, of the, one, one author said, if you want to humble a man quickly, just ask, them, ask him about his prayer life. And that will humble him pretty quickly. Because we, we don't pray as much as we know we should. Most of us, not maybe, there's exceptions. and Some of you are doing a really good job with your prayer life. Praise God for that. Sharing life with the church. We, be, we believe that sharing life with church family is essential to the Christian life. Yet, sometimes our conversations stay on a shallow level. And they never get into deeper issues of spiritual struggles, sin, temptation, and, and fighting through some of those. We believe we should love our neighbor as ourselves. Yet, we can find inconsistencies there in our own lives as well. All that to say, we as Christians can understand the hypocrisy, not by looking around, just by looking in the mirror. Even our convention of churches. We're in a convention of 40,000 plus churches where we have 16 million members and one-third of our members are non-resident members in the, in the, con- in the convention. So you have five to six million people not not resident and they haven't been to their church for years. And then you have another third who, who show up but once a year. And then you have the other third who are coming regularly. And so we have five to six million in Southern Baptist churches on a Sunday where we have 16 million members in our membership. So we could feel the issue here. But let me speak now back to the non-Christian. If you're not a Christian, you're saying, yeah, PJ, well, if there's hypocrisy in the church and you're admitting it yourself, why should... I believe in Christianity. Let me give you three, three replies to the social injustices in, or the injustices and the inconsistencies in Christianity. The solution is not, non-Christian friend, the solution is not to reject Christianity. The solution is deeper Christianity. Real Christianity. Repentant, broken Christianity. Brokenness over our sin type Christianity. So, so, what I would say is, first of all, yes, yes, friend, you're right. There is hypocrisy. And, and what we need to say as Christians is, we're sorry. We just need to admit it. We are sorry. And we know that you have probably been hurt by Christians. I, as a Christian, have hurt non-Christians, I'm sure, in my life. And we just need to say we're sorry. And, you know, we've sinned against God, and we, we need God's forgiveness. We need your forgiveness. Secondly, I would say that... The prophets and the gospels, and this passage in particular, give us resources to confront, confront hypocrisy. So, you know, who's, you know who's the hardest on hypocrites? God is. You know who's the hardest on hypocrites? Jesus is the hardest on hypocrites. James, Jesus' brother who wrote the book of James, is hard on hypocrites. John the apostle who wrote 1 John is hard on hypocrisy. In other words, yes, hypocrisy is a problem, but that doesn't mean reject Christianity and reject the Bible. That means go to the Bible. Because the Bible has that addressed. Better than any of us could expose hypocrisy, the Bible does it. So don't reject Christianity and don't reject Jesus. Come to Jesus. And that's what Martin Luther King said, you know, with the terrible abuses of the, of the church in his day, who were calling, you know, under Christianity to not seek the justice of that day during Martin Luther King's time in the civil rights movement of that day. You know, he used the Bible to critique the churches. He didn't say, forget Christianity. Forget the Bible. He went to the Bible to critique the churches at the time. So if if there is hypocrisy in our lives, in the churches, if you're not a Christian, just know 
that um, we see it and the Bible addresses it. And the answer is deeper Christianity. Not only that, you might say, you know what, I don't want to join a church of Christians because the church is full of hypocrites. Let me say, not quite. There are a few empty chairs here. So uh, you can fit right in. We're not full yet, you know. <laughs> we are, you know, there, there's still room for one more. So if you want to come and join us, hypocrites who need the forgiveness of God and the grace of God in our lives, there's plenty of room. And Jesus died for all of our sins. And, and it can cover your sins too, right? And so that, that's, our, that's our message for you. Now, the temptation to be hypocritical, now trying to zero in here on this text, the temptation to be hypocritical for a moment or for a season comes to us all. Religions can often institutionalize hypocrisy. This is true for even churches who claim that the Bible is the ultimate authority. So here's the main idea of the text of verses 1 through 13. Reject traditions when they express hypocrisy. Okay? That's what the main point of this text is. Reject traditions when the traditions express hypocrisy. So look at Mark chapter 7 in verses 1 through 4. We read it already, but here's Jesus with the Pharisees. Pharisees from Jerusalem, that's like from the university, from the top echelon, from the Vatican, so to speak, or from, from Jerusalem, from the main place of biblical teaching. Here are the experts coming to Jesus in Galilee, and they have a question. Why are your disciples not eating with ritually clean hands? It's not a sanitary question. It's not a question of why are they eating with dirty hands? It's bad for their health. No, it's not that. It's they're ritually unclean. They are, they are separating themselves from God because they're not washing their hands correctly. They're not clean, ritually speaking. Why are your disciples not doing that, Jesus? You're a rabbi, right? You believe in God, the God, who, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Why are, you, why are your disciples not washing their hands? And you say that you come from God. That's their question to Jesus. Now it says here um, that uh, they have all kinds of traditions in verse 4, right? It's not just hand washing that they have. What are the other customs? They wash cups, jugs, copper utensils, and dining couches. In the Mishnah and other Jewish writings that have the traditions that are interpreting and applying the Torah, the first five books of Moses, on washing there's about 30 chapters on just washing stuff to be ritually clean. Whereas in the book of Moses, there's about three or four required cleansings. If you have a dis- bodily discharge, if you're a priest making a sacrifice, if you're an elder who made a special sacrifice, and I can't remember the, the fourth one off the top of my head, but there's four ritual cleansings that are necessary. And none of them are what they mention here in this verse. It's not cleaning your hands before, after you leave the marketplace. Why, why would they do that with the marketplace in verse 4? They say that if you go to the marketplace, there's a lot of Gentiles, non-Jews there. If you touch one of them, you become unclean. And now if you're going to go eat, and you go eat, then, then the uncleanness goes into your body. And then you, you're separated from God in your uncleanness. That was the thinking. And so you need to keep the tradition of the elders, Jesus, and your disciples are not keeping the tradition of the elders. Why not? That's what verse 5 is asking. Why not? Why are they eating bread with ritually unclean hands? Why are they disregarding the tradition of the elders? Now, before we jump into the the three points for the sermon, I have a question for you. I want you to answer yes or no. I'm going to have you raise your hand on yes or no. Okay. Are traditions bad? Are traditions bad? How many of you say yes? Don't worry if you're wrong. There's no penalty. I'm not going to remember who said what. Okay. Um, are traditions bad? How many say yes? Raise your hand. How many say no? Okay. That's the majority. I, I think that's unanimous here. Well, you guys have a good biblical sense. Second Thessalonians 2.15 says this. Therefore, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions you were taught, either by our message or by our letter. Second Thessalonians 3.6 says... Now we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, to keep away from every brother who walks irresponsibly and not according to the tradition received from us. There was an apostolic tradition that was handed down to the churches. What is a tradition? A tradition is a practice, a custom, or a habit that is handed down from one generation to the next. A custom, a practice, or a habit that is handed down from one generation to the next. And traditions are not all bad. 
They're not necessarily bad. Many are good. We have traditions here at First Southern Baptist Church. All churches have traditions. We traditionally meet Sunday mornings at what time? 10, 15 a.m. That's a tradition. If we didn't have a tradition, we would say, everyone check your email Sunday morning and you'll find out what time we meet this week. Right? And we'll figure it out what, and we don't have a set time because we don't want to have a tradition. Then we won't know when to come. You have to go check the phone and, you know, check your email and call people. What time are we meeting this day? That, that, it's good to have some traditions. It has some order. We have the Lord's Supper every other month. We have it a specific way. Not all churches do it this way. We have a pastor and deacons and other leaders here. and We hand out one at a time. We have prayers in between. Uh, we baptize our church in a baptistry. You know, there was a debate among Baptists when church buildings first began because old regular Baptists said that you should baptize in running water. So it would have to be in a river or a creek or an ocean. You couldn't baptize in a church building. And they were saying, you're breaking the tradition. Well, we've never done it this way. We've never done baptisms in a building before. Well, so obviously, we, you know what side we're on because we have our Baptist tank right here, right? But that was a debate early on when church buildings were being made. Some of you have heard me say after I finished reading scripture, this is the word of the Lord. And some people might mumble, thanks be to God. That's a tradition. That's a tradition of a group of, of Christians from England back in the 16 and 1700s. It's just a good tradition that I, you know, I like, and so I, I keep it. But if I said this was the word of God, then that would be wrong. But it's, it's just a, it's a tradition. <clears throat> we have Fourth of July traditions, Right. You have family traditions. You have traditions that cover your personal practices, your family practices, church and community practices, nationwide practices. Traditions, traditions keep us from literally and figuratively reinventing the wheel. Right? If you didn't have traditions, you'd reinvent the wheel. Literally, you'd have to make a wheel every generation because the wheel was handed down to us. Right? And you have to reinvent it if there were no traditions. But even good traditions can become bad when they are idolized. When you take a good tradition and you idolize it, you give it the status of God or the word of God, then it becomes a bad thing. Marriage is a good thing, right? But when marriage becomes your God, it's a bad thing. Not because marriage is bad, but because your, your use of marriage is bad. Family is a good thing. But when you idolize your family, that's bad. Church is a good thing. When you idolize your church, that's bad. Friendship is a good thing. Again, but it's not God. When you take a good thing and you make it a God thing, that's a bad thing, right? And so even good things like traditions can become bad. And here, Jesus violates the tradition of the elders. What's wrong with Jesus here? Why would he do this? His answer, why does he violate their tradition? He gives really two, two answers and then, and then a summary of it. So let's look at these two answers. Look at verse 6. What's wrong? Why doesn't Jesus keep the tradition? Look at verse 6. He answered them, Isaiah prophesied correctly about you, hypocrites. As it is written, these people honor me with their lips, but their heart is what? Far from me. They worship me in what? In vain. They worship me in vain. What's the problem here? So here's the first problem. The problem here is that they have lip service type honor. Heartless praise. Empty worship and devotion to God. And that's a problem. And so point number one is reject ritualism that expresses hypocrisy. Reject ritualism. You know what ritualism is? Ritualism is where you keep ritual for ritual's sake. Now again, rituals are traditions. They're not bad. Having someone come up here, preach behind a pulpit, that's a ritual. Praying is a ritual. If you bow your head and pray, that's a ritual. Rituals aren't bad. Ritualism is bad. And when ritualism expresses hypocrisy, you need to reject it as ritualism. But you have to remember that rituals in and of themselves are good. For example, it says here, these people honor me with their lips. Is it bad to honor God with your lips? No. Hebrews thirteen fifteen says, we bring the sacrifice of praise. That is the fruit of our lips that confess his name. So praising God with your lips is not a sin. It's right. But that's not, that's not the problem. The problem is when you do that with your lips, but your heart is in another country. Or devoted to another person, or another thing, or another activity, or another agenda. And when you do that, you are now ritualistic. You're just keeping the external ritual when your heart is far from God. Now, the heart is the control center of your life. If you want to know what your heart is set on, what are you passionate about? What do you love? What occupies your thoughts throughout the day? 
What happens when you get success? What really excites you when success happens? That's what your heart is set on. Or to think of it another way, what really discourages and disappoints you and gets you down and almost depressed when you don't get it, when failure happens? When you get almost depressed or depressed that failure happens, it's not just disappointment, it's devastation. That's because your heart is set on an idol and that idol is not being fulfilled. And that's why you're devastated the way you might be devastated. The heart is the control center of your life that drives your thoughts, passions, desires, ambitions, emotions. And for them, they're honoring God with their lips, but their hearts are not set on God. Even though that's the greatest commandment, love the Lord your God with all your heart. Pastor Mull just said as he opened in prayer, they have, the church at Ephesus have, have forgotten their first love. They've neglected their first love. Their lips are praising God. Their bodies are praising God. The pastors are up here preaching, praising God with their bodies. And yet their hearts are far from God. It's not enough to just do the bodily things of sitting or praying or lip service. They express praises before God without finding their joy in God. Here's why. What's the problem here? The problem here is that they're not going to God for God. They're going to God to get what they really want. That's why their hearts are far from God. They don't want God ultimately. They want what God can give them. Healing. Food. Money. A spouse. A friend. Knowledge. Education. Approval from society. Approval from my religious community. Avoiding hell. Freedom from guilt or shame. Fixing my loved one. Fixing my problem. God, if you give me those things, I'll do my rituals. I will do the rituals and God will have to give me these things. Or at least, he might, there might be a better chance that he'll do it. He might be a bit more inclined to do it if I keep up the rituals. And thus, their hearts are far from God. God becomes a chauffeur, a butler, rather than the date that you're going to. Take me to my date, right? And God's not the one you're loving. He's the, sir, he's the you know, he's just the slave who's taking you to what you really treasure, what you really want. And that is vain worship. That's lip service. We go to God for who? For God. God is our healing. God is our food. God is our money. God is our friend and our companion. God is our knowledge. God is our approval. He is our heaven. He's why we want to avoid hell, because we want God. He's our goal and our freedom when shame is removed. That's what worship is. I want God for God, because He is altogether lovely and majestic and glorious. God's greatest gift to us is Himself. Right? That's the greatest gift. And if we're going to God for secondary gifts, and I'm not saying we shouldn't pray for secondary gifts, but we need to know even why we want those secondary gifts. Is it so that we could have more of God? Or do we want more of God just so we can get those secondary gifts? The order matters. The goal matters. They express praises before God without finding their joy in God. So how does this apply to us? How do we fight ritualism? Well, what they had was the right confession, but the wrong God functionally. They were going after something else. So if you're not a Christian, let me just tell you. If you're saying, okay, PJ, I'm not a Christian, what do you want me to do? You want me to get religious? No. Religion is not the answer. Rituals are not the answer. Your religion won't save you. Even the church, your churchianity won't save you. We're not telling you that to enjoy Jesus, you need to do these seven or ten practices, and then, you'll, then your life will be transformed. That's not what we're saying. Our message is not get religious. If you grew up in a church, I need to say something to you as well. Just because you grew up in church doesn't mean you're a Christian. Just because your parents are Christian and you were born under Christian parents doesn't make you a Christian either. Nor is necessarily walking the aisle or praying a prayer or getting baptized. These things don't make you a Christian. Now, it's good to be raised in a Christian home. It's commanded to get baptized. Prayer is certainly a good thing. But all of these things can be done in empty worship, lip service, where your heart is devoted to another goal and another master. That's possible. It's possible. What does this mean for our church? 
If, if there's empty worship and ritualism, how do we as a church fight ritualism? Why do we gather together on a Sunday? Hebrews 10, 24 and 25 says, And let us not forsake the, the what? The assembling or gathering or meeting of ourselves together, as is the habit of some, or... But let, or before, sorry, I just skipped that. Let us consider how to stir each other up to love and good works, not forsaking the assembly. Why do we get together? To encourage each other and to not forsake the assembly so that we can stir each other up to love and good works. That's what's going to keep us from being ritualistic. Have you come this morning to this gathering to worship God by encouraging someone else this morning? That's how we keep from rituals. Leave another soul encouraged today and you will keep this church from becoming ritualistic. If you just come and sit down and leave, you're going to contribute to ritualism. But if you come and you think, who can I encourage? Who can I pray for? Who can I love? And, and who can I express love to? What need can I meet? How can I be a blessing? Or what burden can I share with someone so that they can bear my burden? That's what the church does. That's what church family does. That's what loving one another is. And that will keep from ritualism. For the Christian, we need to worship God in spirit and truth. Let's go to the second reason why Jesus um, rejects, or a second reason here to reject the tradition of the elders. Look at verse 7 again. Verse 7 says, they, the very, very end of verse 7 says, they teach as doctrines the what? Teaching as doctrines of God the commands of? Yeah. Of men. And look at verse 8. Disregarding the command of God, you keep the tradition of men. Look at verse 13. You revoke God's word by your? Tradition that you have handed down and you do many other similar things. So here's the second thing. First point, reject ritualism that expresses hypocrisy. Second point, reject traditionalism that expresses hypocrisy. Reject traditionalism. What were they doing here in verse uh, verse 8 and verse 13? They're rejecting or disregarding the command of God and they're living by the, the, the traditions of of men. Okay, when you teach the traditions of men as equal to the commands of God, you're in effect neglecting the command of God. You can't have it both ways. This is the problem of Roman Catholicism, is that they have the the Roman Catholic tradition is authoritative, is binding on people to the very same degree as the word of God. And when you do that, you in effect displace the word of God. That's what happens. If, I, if we start saying certain traditions in our church and we say that this tradition is equal to the word of God, in effect, that tradition will displace the word of God. And when that happens, we have now fallen into the sin of traditionalism. Traditions are good. Traditionalism is bad. So then Jesus gives them an example of how they do it. Look at verse 9. He says to them, you completely invalidate God's command in order to maintain your tradition. Look at verse 10. For Moses said... Honor your father and your mother. That's one of the Ten Commandments, right? Fifth command, honor your father and mother. Are you supposed to do that? Yes or no? Yes. And he even goes to another verse that Moses wrote. Whoever speaks evil of father or mother must be put to death. Wow. Did you know that there was a death penalty in the Old Covenant Israel community for for speaking evil against your father or mother? You'd get stoned to death for doing that. Wow. That's how serious this command is. And yet... You Pharisees, Jesus is saying here, and yet you Pharisees have taken this crystal clear command that actually deserves the death penalty and you have set that aside to keep your tradition. What tradition? Look at verse 11. But you say, if a man tells his father or mother, whatever benefit you might have received from me is Corbin, that is a gift committed to the temple, you no longer let him do anything for his father or mother. What does that mean? So here's what it means, basically. It's, you could devote anything you own to the temple. And that's what, that's what Corbin is. So let's say I have a car, or let's say I own a house. And I say, this house is now Corbin, it's dedicated to God. When I die, my inheritance, or I'm leaving it in my will, to the church. This, this, my house is now the churches. My cars are now the churches, I'm devoting it to them. And then my parents get sick. And they need medical help and they need money to do it. And I say, and they say, PJ, can you help? Sorry. My house is Corbin. It's devoted to God. I'm not even, I mean, now I'm still living there. Sorry, my car is Corbin. Can't help you, mom. Can't help you, dad. Sorry, it's devoted to God. Because I'm in love with God. I'm trying to worship God. 
So I can't help you, mom. I can't help you, dad. And Jesus is saying, wait, wait, wait. So this tradition of Corbin, where you put in your will something to God and it's devoted to God, now you can't use that to honor your father and your mother? Which one is the clear biblical command? Corbin or honor your father and your mother? Which one's in the Bible? Honor your father and mother, right? Where's Corbin in the Bible? It's not. Keep your vows is in the Bible. But still, you see how keeping your vows and then they move it to Corbin and now, sorry mom, sorry dad, I can't help because it's Corbin, it's God's, it's the temples, it's the churches. And then they actually end up disobeying God's word. So you use a tradition to trump truth. Tradition trumps truth. And that's sinful. That's traditionalism. Can this happen in the church today? Can church culture have traditions that cause us to reject the command of God? Can Christian individual traditions lead us to not obey God's word? Yes. There are some family traditions. You know, um, family dinner. So you can have family dinner every night from 5 to 7, and then you have a neighbor who needs help, or you have a church member who needs help, or someone wants to come over for dinner. Sorry, this is my family time. Can't help. Can't love my neighbor. Because it's family time. Now, it's good to have family time. It's good to guard your family, especially if you're a father. You need to lead your family in that regard. But if you're leading so much so that you can't break your schedule to serve somebody and extend mercy, your tradition has now become traditionalism. There's another tradition that's gaining steam. I know it's not with the older members of the church, and I'm grateful for that, but with younger members of the church, where they treat Sunday like a second Saturday. Saturday is kind of your day to kind of... Um, you know, let loose and fill in with whatever you want during the week. Some people treat Sunday like a second Saturday. That's what the American culture will say, right? What do we say here? Sunday is what day? The Lord's Day, right? We celebrate Jesus resurrected from the dead. It's not Saturday. This is not a second day of free time. This is time to come with God's people to encourage and stir each other up because the day is drawing near when judgment is coming. And everyone is a week closer to death this week than they were last week. So why are we here? To encourage each other because we're getting closer to the death of our own lives or the second coming of Jesus. Coming together is not a game. It's not merely a tradition. It's life. We need to grow in our faith. We need encouragement. We need strengthening. We need to be stirred up to love and good works. That's why I'm here. It's not merely a tradition. Yet, people treat church like it's a second Saturday. You know, I, and this, this, I think this, ha- you know, um, I, this has happened at least in our, in our former church plant in L.A., but, and I just noticed it there, that there's now a tradition, like, when it's your birthday, you take off from church, like it's a holiday. I'm like, what? what ha- when did that happen? When did your birthday become a holiday from gathering with God's people? I don't, I didn't, I don't get that. And so my principle, maybe this is more to the younger people, I know the older people are like, what? I'm, you know... Here's Xavier, you know, celebrating your birthday here, being a good example of that, right? But thank you for that, by the way. That's, that's a good thing. Um, my, my rule of thumb is, if you're not going to miss work, don't miss church. If you wouldn't miss work for it, don't miss gathering with your church for it. Why, why would you treat work as more important, you know, than church, where this is your lifeline for your soul? And I know I'm preaching to the choir because you're all here, right? It's those who aren't here that need to hear it, but that's, that is what it is. Okay, so that's a tradition. Another tradition might be the tradition of minding your own business or not judging others or being loving, coupled with the me and Jesus mentality, where it actually leads. This tradition of it's just about me and Jesus. Now I belong to Jesus. Jesus belongs to me, not for the years of time alone, but for eternity. Now I chose that song, so I'm not picking on anyone here. I, this, I chose that song. So, But the point of that song is me and Jesus, right? And we could take that tradition of it's just about a personal relationship with God, which is true, to say that the church has no say in my walk with God. And that's not true. And you know what the biggest evidence of that is in America today is? The lack of church discipline. Restorative church discipline with exclusion and excommunication. We, we think, how can the church ever say that I'm not right with God? They have no right to say that to me. That's individualism. And that tradition has been killing churches, killing churches. Churches are dying because they can't know who's in and who's out and why. Here's what Greg Wills, he's a professor at First Southern, not First Southern Baptist Church, that's us, at Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, the first Southern Baptist Theological Seminary of all the six seminaries in Kentucky. He's a professor of church history, and this is what he writes. 
After the Civil War, Baptist observers began to lament that church discipline was floundering, and it was. It declined partly because it became more burdensome in larger churches. Young Baptists refused in increasing numbers to submit to discipline for dancing. Not that I commend that, but that's, that was history. Okay? Discipline for dancing, and the churches shrank from excluding them. Urban churches, pressed by the need for large buildings and the desire for refined music and preaching, subordinated church discipline to the task of keeping the church solvent. Many Baptists shared a new vision for the church. This is after the Civil War. Many Baptists shared a new vision of the church, replacing the pursuit of purity with the quest for efficiency. You hear that? They replaced the pursuit of purity in the church, of who's a member, for the quest for efficiency. They lost the resolve to purge their churches of straying members. Wow. The tradition of keeping up the church payments. We got building payments to do. We can't exclude people. People aren't going to come. We're going to shrink. And if we shrink, no one will come and we're going to die. So let's keep the tradition of paying our mortgage and not disciplining straying members to get them back. I don't know where the tradition of non-resident membership came in. I don't know. I really don't know. So I'm not going to speak to that. But that's some, you, we have to check that even by the Bible. But here's the point here of the text. Here's the point of the text. They had the right God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Right? The Pharisees had the right God, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but they had the wrong, but what was wrong was they marginalized his word. When you have your traditions marginalizing God's word and pushing God's word to the side, you might have the right God, but you have the wrong way of getting to him. And that's a problem. So Jesus says, forget your tradition. My disciples are going to wash with, they're going to eat with unclean hands because I don't care about your tradition because it sets aside God's word. Now, let me give you an illustration to, to help you see how you could, might have the right God, but the wrong method to get there. If I take my wife out on a date, now we've been, we've been married, we're on our 11th year of marriage. We're starting, we're, you know, we're in the process of our 11th year of, of marriage. And if I want to take her out for our anniversary, and I say, you know what, I'm going to love my wife. I'm going to sacrifice my preferences for her. Is that a noble thing? So what I'm going to say is, you know what, I'm going to take my wife to this Thai restaurant in Roland Heights called Banana Bay. So I'm going to take my wife to this restaurant, restaurant called Banana Bay. I don't like eating there, but I'm going to do it and sacrifice for my wife. So it's our anniversary, and I want her to be happy, so I sacrifice for her. I blindfold her. Right? We take her in the car. I drive to the place. I take her to the reserve seats. I take off the blindfold, and I say, We're here! Surprise! And her jaw drops. She's upset, disappointed, in shock. She hates Banana Bay. (laughs) She hates this restaurant. This is the last place she'd want me to take her. And we're in our 11th year of marriage. Am I loving her in this moment? I sacrificed my desires. I don't want to eat there. I sacrificed for her. I don't want to eat at Banana Bay. Am I loving her? I mean, she's my wife. I'm not with another woman. I'm with her. It's the right woman, right? It's the right woman. You're my wife. So you have the right woman. But I haven't listened to her words. I've been married to her her for 11 years, and I don't know that she doesn't like Banana Bay, that she hates it. I have disregarded her words. I have not understood her tastes. I haven't conformed my heart to her heart's desires. I have ignored her for 11 years. Right woman, wrong restaurant. In vain did I try to honor her. I have put my tradition of being sacrificial in the place of hearing her words and knowing that she hates this place and wants to eat somewhere else. Don't we do that with God? He has told us what he wants us to do. He's given us 66 books to tell us how to live our lives individually and as a church. I got the right God, Jesus Christ. Yet we've set aside his word for our traditions of self-sacrifice or whatever other traditions we have, that are not in line with the word of God. We've set aside the command of God for the traditions of men, and that is wrong for all of us. Diagnostic question if you're a Christian. Are you aware, brothers and sisters, I want to encourage you now, with a little bit more conviction maybe, are you aware that you have certain traditions and opinions that are not in line with the word of God? You, I'm talking about you personally. Don't, look, don't think about other people right now. You have certain Traditions or convictions in your life that are not in line with God's word? Did you know that? All of you do. I know that. You know why? 
because you're not perfect yet. Right? Unless you're going to stand up and say, I'm perfect, PJ. I don't need to grow anymore. I have my life completely lined up with this. Then praise God, you got a glorified body before we did. How did you do it? I want it too. Right? But if you're not glorified yet, you still have sin in your life. Which means some parts of your life are not lined up with this. Some traditions, some beliefs, some customs, some habits you have and some habits I have are not in line with this. Do you understand that? And are you willing to look for it and find it? Second question here. Are you open to listening to the scriptures and some brothers and sisters explaining the scriptures to you so that they can correct you? Or are you so certain that you can't be wrong because that is what you think and that's what's been handed down to you before. So therefore, it's not even up for biblical examination. It's not even up for question. Parents, teach your children that you can be wrong. Teach your children that this word of God is above the traditions of you as a dad and mom. And that you can be wrong sometimes. And that they can correct you respectfully and humbly if it is from the Bible. Teach them that there's an authority over you that that gives you the authority to be a parent. Because I'll teach them One, to love you more and respect you more. And secondly, to be a good parent when they become parents. We want the church to be ruled by Jesus Christ, don't we? Don't we want his word to rule in our churches? And that's why we we have this principle called sola scriptura. Have you heard of that? Scripture alone as the ultimate authority in the church. You know, the Roman Catholic Church had a saying, semper idem. Semper idem. Idem. Which means always the same. When the Protestant Reformation happened, you know, they're saying, well, the church, our church has always been the same. You know what the, the, the Protestant Reformed Church said in contrast? Theirs was Ecclesia Reformata, Semper Reformanda, Secundum Verbum Dei, which basically means the church reformed and always reforming according to the Word of God. And they shortened it to Semper Reformanda, which basically means always reforming. So the Roman Catholic Church is always staying the same, and the other churches are saying we are always reforming according to what? The Word of God. In other words, our churches are not perfect. And because our churches are not perfect, our churches need to always be reforming according to the word of God, lest we put in the place of the commands of God the traditions of men. And so what does this mean for our church? It means that we need to be dedicated to expository preaching. There's an article of that on the back of your your bulletin today. We need to be dedicated to expository preaching, which means that the main point of of the sermon is the main point of the passage. And our church family, preaching is not enough. We need to be good listeners. We need to be praying over the sermon. We need to be thinking about this text. We need to figure out how it applies to our lives. We don't want to be... Tom Rayner is the president of the Sunday School Board of the Southern Baptist Convention, now called Lifeway Christian Resources. He talks about churchianity. This is how he defines churchianity. He says, "A a Churchianity is a type of church built upon traditionalism. Tradition becomes the idol where where we do it this way because I like it, because it makes me comfortable, and because we've done it this way before. That's traditionalism. That's churchianity. So what do we need to do? We need to test all of our traditions by the scripture. Sunday school, singing. Is singing in the Bible? Should we sing? Why or why not? Should we greet each other? Why or why not? Should we do announcements? Why or why not? Should we welcome visitors? Should we have a call to worship? Should we have prayer? Should we have scripture reading? Should I be preaching right now? Should we have a monologue sermon? You know, should we have a profession of faith, altar call for, for conversion or profession of faith or baptism or membership or rededication? Should we have a closing blessing? Should we meet on Sundays or should we meet on another day? Now, a lot of these things are good things. But the question is not, well, PJ said they're good things, so they're good things. Is that true? No, not necessarily. These are good things. How will we know if they're good things or bad things? By what? By the Bible. We always go back to the Bible. Let's go last. Let's close here with the... Look at ver- the, the closing summary. So reject ritualism, reject traditionalism. Here's the closing part. Look at verse 6. Look at verse 6 with me. What does verse 6 say? What does Jesus call them? Isaiah prophesied correctly about you. And what does he call them? Hypocrites. So here's the last point and closing is repent from hypocrisy. Reject ritualism, reject traditionalism, and repent from hypocrisy. Now, he says, Isaiah told you this. Isaiah called you this. So let me tell you what Isaiah is talking about in Isaiah 29. In Isaiah chapter 29, where this quote comes from, Isaiah is prophesying to the southern kingdom of Judah because the the nation of Israel, God's people, that were redeemed out of Egypt, they have a covenant, the law covenant of Moses. They're breaking the covenant. 
And so you know what God is, God is telling them through Isaiah? If you keep breaking the covenant, you are going to be kicked out of the land. The way Adam and Eve were kicked out of the Garden of Eden, where God lived with them, now you're in my promised land and my temple's here with you. You will get kicked out of this land if you keep disobeying my covenant. And so Isaiah is saying that God is going to make their, their eyes blind, their ears deaf, and their minds dull. And, and then you say, why? Why is God going to make them blind, deaf, and dull? And then he says, because you honor me with your lips, but your hearts are far from me. You trade the commands of God for the traditions of men. That's why I'm going to make your eyes blind, your ears deaf, and your mind dull. You just think, wow. So in other words, if you continue in hypocrisy, if we continue with ritualism and traditionalism, you know what God's judgment is? Blindness, deafness, and dullness. Where now you, not only are you wrong, you can't even be corrected from being wrong. Your heart is so hard, you're, you're now blind. You can't see the truth anymore. The Pharisees couldn't see it. Who's the son of God? Jesus is, right? And where is he in this conversation? He's right in front of the Pharisees. The son of God. The fulfillment of all the Old Testament scriptures that all of their tradition is pointing to is right in front of them and they can't see him. They're blind. They hear him teach. They're deaf. They see the miracles, they're dull. They reject Jesus on the basis of their tradition, which is interpreting the Old Testament scriptures, which is supposed to point them to Jesus. When we stay hardened in our traditions and our rituals, we will become blind, deaf, and dull and miss out on what God is teaching us. That is scary. That is scary. And so we need to repent from our hypocrisy, and all of us are guilty. I'll, let me just, I, I have one tradition here that I'll say in my life that I've sinned against God. And I was thinking about it when we were singing. It wasn't in my sermon notes, but I thought about it. I said, Lord, show me also what, what traditions do I have in my life that I'm sinning against you? I could think of one that's been lately in my life is my sermon preparation um, practices. I've been neglecting, uh, one of the things I want to do is play with my kids every day. Have time with my kids for at least an hour, two hours every day where I get to play with them and hang out with them. There's some days this week where I didn't do it. Because of my tradition, my customs, my habits of how I'm doing sermon prep, and it's constantly on my mind, that I, even when I'm with my kids, I'm sort of checked out. I'm neglecting the command to raise up my children in the discipline and admonition of the Lord, Ephesians 6.4. I'm neglecting the word of God from my tradition of my sermon preparation time. That's sinful, right? And if I harden my heart in that, I'll lose my kids, right? I might lose my wife, or, or I'll lose my pastoral ministry because I'm disqualified. If you can't manage your household well, you're not qualified to be a pastor, point is, any of us, traditions we have, can easily displace the word of God. And so we need to repent. We need to repent. Now, what is hypocrisy here? Hypocrisy here is not insincerity. Were the Pharisees sincere in their traditions? They were sincere. We think of hypocrisy as insincerity. That's not what hypocrisy is here. Hypocrisy here is inconsistency coupled with impenitence. Or another way is contradictions in your life, contradictions without confessing your sins. That's what hypocrisy is. When everyone's a hypocrite, in a sense, like everyone sins, but when you don't have confession and repentance, you're a hypocrite. You're a hardened hypocrite. And that was the problem here. They became entrenched in their hypocrisy, and they were dull to the things of God. And so we, religious Christians, devoted church members, we need to be careful of this, because traditions are good. Traditions are good. We just need to be careful with our traditions and always go back to the Bible again and again and again. And so in Isaiah 29, where this quote comes from, God says eventually he's going to restore his people. And he's going to remove those people who have been so hardened in their traditions. He's going to remove them from hindering the people of God, is what it says in Isaiah 29. So how can we hypocrites be forgiven and restored? It says in Isaiah 29 that these these hypocrites, these hardened Um, traditionalists are going to dwell in darkness and God is going to judge them and cut them off from the people of God. How are we hypocrites going to be restored? Well, if those hypocrites were going to get exiled in Isaiah 29, you know who got exiled instead? Jesus did. He was cut off from the land of the living. It says these hypocrites are going to dwell in darkness. You know what Jesus did on the cross from 12 p.m. to 3 p.m.? He hung in what? Darkness. He dwelt in darkness. As he hung on the cross. It says in Isaiah 29, Woe to you, traditionalists. Cursed are you. Jesus is on the cross, and what is he? Cursed. 
He's cursed for us. He's treated like the dull, blind, deaf, hypocritical, ritualistic, traditionalistic sinner. And he's judged by God for us, ritualistic, traditionalistic, hypocritical people. Praise God that Jesus came. Amen? He died in our place because all of us need his forgiveness. All of us need his grace. So if you're not a Christian, let me just tell you very clearly, we're all sinners, including you. We're going to be judged by God for our sins. But Jesus died in your place. He rose from the dead so that if you turn from your sins, repent from your sins, and trust in Jesus Christ, you can be forgiven and saved. You'll be given the Holy Spirit, and he will transform your life. Please come to Jesus if you're not a Christian. Trust in him and repent today. Call on him to save you. For the Christians, let's admit our hypocrisy and let's keep repenting. Let's keep going to the word of God. Let's not look at other people. Don't, even right now, don't be thinking about other people. Look at yourself, look in the mirror and say, I need to repent. God, show me where I need to repent of my inconsistencies and contradictions and hypocrisies. So we will reject ritualism. We will reject traditionalism. We will repent from hypocrisy. We will cling to Christ. We will cling to the word of Christ and we will let his word guide our life and our church together. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for convicting us and stepping on our toes. We pray that our hearts were soft enough to be convicted. Thank you for convicting me as we were singing, just reminding me about my traditions of my sermon preparation in the last few weeks and how it has caused me to grieve you and to dishonor you in the way I care for my precious children. Forgive us, Father, all of us. And I know I have more. There's, there's more in all of us. There's more things in our lives that we need to repent from. So, Father, would you forgive us? We don't have any righteousness in ourselves. We come to you because Jesus was treated like the hypocrite. He, was, he dwelt in darkness. He was the one who was cursed. He was the one cut off from the land of the living so that we sinners can be made right with you. And so we trust and cling to Christ afresh. And we pray that we would walk in your ways and that you'd continue to work in our church family and in us as individuals. We pray for any non-Christian friends here that you would save them this morning. We love you. We trust you. And we look to you now to continue to guide and shepherd us. In Jesus' name, amen.